Georgia's DBHDD reminds people that the Good Samaritan Law can save lives during alcohol and drug overdoses. People are urged to call 911 and stay until help arrives. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for being with us for Political Rewind today. I'm Bill Nygut. Uh, Listen, I know that not everyone who's out there in the listening audience, number one, is from Metro Atlanta, and number two, wants uh, the, the state to spend your tax dollars on any kind of public transit. But uh, we have uh, four uh, panelists on this show today, and every one of them came in at the very last second, never happened before this way, because traffic is so awful out there in Atlanta today, isn't it, Greg Bluestein? It's not like it's rush hour. It's it's, it's it was one thirty. Yeah. It's like there's a bridge burned down on eighty five. That, yeah. That's what it's like out there. Yeah. Although I must say. If you're on 14th Street, you cannot turn left on Peachtree. Please don't try that anymore. <laughs> don't do when you're, you're right. When you're coming this way, west on uh, 14th Street, you can't do it. So now you've heard from Greg Bluestein, political reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. He uh, appears in the paper virtually every day with stories about politics and also contributes to the po- Political Insider blog at AJC.com. You heard Dr. Andre Gillespie, political science professor from Emory University, who is with back with us today and has a brand new brand new book about Barack Obama and the impact that Barack Obama had on African American community for good and I don't want to say not so good but the good things that happened and the things that didn't happen and the things that didn't happen and I just will start off by saying that reparations shouldn't be a part of that discussion but I'm sure we'll get to that later we do want to talk reparations in the context of what this uh, holiday is and we will get to that later Brian Robinson Republican former uh, uh, communications director for former Governor Nathan Deal, now out in the world with your own company doing government relations work. You know, I don't think I've ever asked you the name of your company on the air. Oh, you have. Yeah, it's Robinson Republic, and, and it's uh, Public Affairs Communications. I don't really do any lobbying, but uh, but I help. I do help lobbyists who are doing work that perhaps is going to be covered by people like Greg Bluestein. Yeah, yeah, and Bill Nygut, and mm-hmm. you of all people. Having been involved in the Gwinnett Martyr referendum, yeah, <laughs> today should feel disappointed that that referendum didn't pass. I sometimes dangerously and illegally take pictures from my phone <laughs> on I eighty five. What were you thinking? <laughs> not dangerous if you're not moving. Brian Robinson. <laughs> Brian true. Robinson was involved on the uh, let's pass this referendum side of the issue, which uh, went down. But it'll be back. We'll it'll be watch back. It. It'll pass next time. It would have passed this time if it had been on the general election ballot. It was destined to fail by putting being put alone. Ancient on the history, Robinson. I Ancient know. history. I know. We're going to talk about current history. Mary Margaret Oliver is here, Democratic uh, representative from Decatur, Mary. Margaret, you had trouble getting here, too, yeah? I remember the night the deal was struck that Georgia Public Television would be on 14th Street instead of Decatur in Claremont, yeah. and I want to regret that decision. <laughs> <laughs> that was a bad. We got, we got the bio lab on Claremont. We got, we got a toxic lab. lab. <laughs> toxic lab. So we all have our ancient history to gripe about <laughs> right, today. Exactly. And it's not so ancient history, the Republican leaders that messed up intentionally the Gwinnett-Marta vote. I haven't forgotten that. <laughs> true or not true, Brian? True. I, I, that's right. what I was saying. That's uh, what I was saying. All right. Uh, it's not so ancient history, and we'll certainly have more time to talk about a referendum that will come back at some point in the not-too-distant future. And not, not in 2026, future. as there is a late push to yeah. delay that time. <laughs> right. All right. Let's start with uh, an update. Greg Bluestein, yesterday on this show, we talked about the fact that Brad Raffensperger, the Secretary of State, had kind of surprised everyone who had been asking him, when are you going to hold the Georgia primary, presidential primary? You haven't announced a date. It's getting closer and closer. He said, well, you know, we're going to get the new machines in. We're going to train people. Then we'll see about when to hold the primary. And I think that um, put some county election people's hair on fire. And so it changed all of a sudden. Yeah, their hair was on fire even before that because they've got to get their schedules. They've got to pre-print their materials. They've got to get churches and civic centers and all the places you hold these votes ready um, because early voting starts a month before the the vote. So there's a lot of things that had to happen. So they're already kind of freaking out. And there was a reversal today. We're not sure exactly why because the Secretary of State's office is not exactly very communicative on those issues. But um, we were told for a front page order 
clerk on Monday that they would be waiting until all the elections machines were, were purchased and a plan was implemented. And then today we heard from local elections officials all over Georgia uh, emailing us and alerting us before the Secretary of State's office went public with it that, that the bulletin was out and the election was going to be, the, pri- the presidential primary would be held March 24th. So, um, um, Andre, let me ask you about this. You know, yesterday what we talked about was this possibility that if you were going to wait till the machines came in, till people were trained, you could presumably not have this presidential primary until really late in the process, May, maybe hey. even June. The fact that we're now in late March, no longer part of this so-called Super Tuesday, which is the beginning of March, southern states mm-hmm. all voting. Do you have any sense of whether how that makes an impact in the Democratic primary, which is the only contest that, that's going to be decided? Well, I mean, I think probably the big thing about Super Tuesday this year is that um, California is going to be a part of Super Tuesday. Mm. So that was already had the possibility of sucking the air out of the room. That's going to be a must win for Kamala Harris in particular because she's from that state. And, you know, not knowing what's going to happen then, what we could see is the field winnowing. Um, It may not have winnowed down to the final candidate by the end of March just because there's so many candidates Mm -hmm. in the field. So there still may be a a way or a role for Georgia to play in helping to select the nominee. Um, They might not play as pivotal a role in the winnowing process. And so I think the thing that's going to be interesting is to see who gets past um, Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, Nevada, and then who's still alive after Super Tuesday. And then we, you know, might actually get a lot of attention, but it's not the same as being part of the SEC primary, you know, um, before as we've been in the past. Mary Margaret, you'll probably have a horse in the fight by that time. I will by then. I've just come back from Charleston the two days of talking about 2020 elections and the term hair on fire, of, you know, relates to me and, <laughs> and, and most of us. Uh, our friend Jim Galloway's column today was talking about the advantages of Georgia again to echo Andre that we are advantages of not being on the Tuesday. I believe Texas may be on the Super Tuesday in addition to California. Those two larger than Georgia states uh, would be very much more impactful. Uh, It is impossible to predict, in my view, but it is certainly possible and maybe even likely that there'll still be a contest May 24th down to a small... Yeah, March 24th. Thank you. Yeah, the May primary for me is... was what I was fearing. Yeah, that's really the presidential yeah. When the U.S. Senate and the state and uh, local elections primaries in May, third Tuesday in May, and that's what I was fearing. So March 24th is really a happy conclusion, a happy suggested date for me. The hair on fire issues about when the bid is going to be granted and whether or not anybody to whom the bid is granted, and of course we all assume who's going to get it, um, the ability to create 28,000 machines, the ability to do the necessary steps is all very, very dicey. Um, Brian, uh, let's be clear to our listeners. There are going to be two primaries, as there are in Georgia, whenever we have a presidential year. There will be the presidential primary, which we now know is March 24th, and then we will have a separate primary uh, in May for uh, the other for state offices, for David Perdue, for members of Congress, and that sort of thing. Uh, do you? It does strike me, Brian, uh, that. Being at the end of March, as Andre points out, with a potential for a larger field, although I'd be shocked if it's not considerably down to smaller, maybe down to maybe five, six candidates by then. Maybe, but, you know, voters here, Democratic voters, are going to want to have to be able to play a role in picking, helping pick a nominee. Late March isn't so bad anymore in that respect. No, if you look back to 2016, as the primary battle between Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton raged on and on and on, you saw these later date states get a lot of attention from the candidates. They were there doing events in those states, those states getting lots of media attention, the victory parties on those election nights, whether they be in Wisconsin or Michigan, those are some of the ones that I remember from 2016. Those are really big uh, events. If you, do you recall, for example, when Bernie Sanders sort of surprised Hillary Clinton with a win in Michigan? Yeah. That was huge news. Huge. And something that uh, you would not have thought early on in the process that Michigan, Michigan was going to matter, but it did. And Georgia is increasingly an important state for Democrats, even though this is still a red state, because we have such a wealthy 
and large numerically Democratic primary audience here, and Democrats see us as a battleground for 2020. Well, remains unclear is why there's this shift. I mean, if if three days ago the reason you couldn't hold the pro- you couldn't set a primary date was because of the election machines, what changed? Because yeah. obviously we don't we don't have anything significant in the election uh, voting machine uh, purchasing uh, field yet. Um, but I think what we're hearing from Democrats, and including Nakima Williams, this, the, the chair of the Democratic Party. Who will be on the show on Friday, by the way. Oh, cool. Go ahead. Um, well, what she said was this is welcome news. Right. The, 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 the three, having, having it a few weeks after Super Tuesday would only sort of separate Georgia from the pack because Super Tuesday isn't quite what it used to be because of all those big states, Texas and California, and all those other states that are, that are going to be kind of hemmed in. Um, and what they were worried about, and Representative Oliver alluded to that, was a May date because Georgia has not held a primary in May since 1976 when Jimmy Carter was on the ballot. Yeah. Um, all right. Let's, you know, let's hope that, that uh, Raffensperger, the Secretary of State, is a little bit more transparent about the reasoning he suddenly was able to come up with a date. I, you do have to wonder, we, we do know, um, and this is getting into the weeds just a little bit, the county election officials, as you pointed out at the beginning, were starting to say, we need dates. We need to know that we can have that school cafeteria, that we can have that library for, for our voting. So, you know, to some extent, it may be that they finally prevailed on him to get something on the calendar so they could. The logistics of over 4 million people, it'll be at least 4 million people, out of the six million plus who are registered, who want to come vote is, is enormous. And the the real fear about these new machines and the ability for them to be plugged in and working is significant. All right, well, last quick point on this to you, Andra. Uh, on one hand, we wanna be important to the presidential primary process. On the other hand, it is also certainly, it, it is also worth pointing out that when we went to these um, computer machines the first time around, there was a long period of training for the election workers and then a public education campaign so voters knew what they were doing. So while it's great we now have a date, there is going to be a big onus on the Secretary of State and on county election officials to make sure their people know how to operate these machines and voters know how to use them um yeah so you know not that i actually do handle deadlines all that well but deadlines are actually really focusing <laughs> we remember when your book was getting set for <laughs> right but deadlines are focusing for a, a, a number of reasons and so you know there's no room for error here right. um you have a date you've got to figure out how to make this work by then and you can't cut corners on it so now everybody has their marching orders and so i now think that it's time for the public and for journalists to help keep officials accountable to make sure that they're on track to make sure that they're yeah. that this is a seamless transition process. Yeah. What scares me here is that there's going to be a lot of Democratic money and interest groups with looking for anything. They're looking for a problem uh, anywhere in the state. So the microscope is going to be really tough for the yeah. Secretary of I, State. I suspect that Raffensperger's office was well aware of that, and it may have been one of the reasons for their caution. Let, let's move on if we can, but let's stay with elections for at least a couple of minutes. Mary Margaret, this morning, a number of you in uh, Dem- the Democrats in the House announced an endorsement in the 7th District Congressional race. You got together uh, with Nan Oreck, with others. Yes, aren't you part of that group? Uh, You're I looking got... at me as if I don't know what I'm talking about, but I do. It was in the paper, <laughs> I thought. It was Your in the newspaper. <laughs> well, good. Uh, might I inquire, forgive me, I just hit Georgia. <laughs> might I inquire who I am for in this, <laughs> new, in this newspaper article? Greg Bluestein, uh, I think you wrote the Carolyn piece. Bardot. You were listed as one of the endorsers for I Carolyn am one Bardot. of the endorsers. I'm proud to be one of the endorsers. <laughs> I'm glad. You know, if I were Carolyn Bardot listening to this show, I'd be glad for such a hearty endorsement. Right. <laughs> I didn't know that they were and having today, to get to that. You're fine. And today, two, uh, I think you were already, in, they listed you as someone who's already endorsed, but there was two more names added to the list today, uh, Scott Holcomb and Nan Orak. Um, and it was interesting because it was, ex- while on one hand it's expected that Carolyn Bordeaux, the runner-up last year, gets that many endorsements. On the other hand, one of your colleagues, Brenda Lopez-Romero, is running um, for this seat too. So it, uh, we were going to ask you about the, the, the bind that puts you in because... It, 
you know, she's a friend and colleague of yours. She's a friend and a colleague and a highlight and a big talent. But those of us that have supported Carolyn Bordeaux from the beginning and have been so admiring of her tenacity, so admiring of the skill of which she developed a campaign that lost by another heartbreaker, 400 votes, and then Woodall immediately resigns. Uh, We are very loyal to her quality of her candidacy, and uh, I wish Brenda well. I wish she will have a bright, bright future, but I believe Carolyn has a base of voters out there and a loyal base of voters like uh, others that I know, me and others, uh, that will carry her through in this race. Mary Margaret, I want to give you just a tiny bit of cover on this little uh, exchange. It, your endorsement of Carolyn Bordeaux was never in doubt. You've been with her from uh, for a while now. It's simply that you weren't aware that the news release announcing all of you <laughs> had gone out this morning. Thank you very much. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. I apologize Brian, for my tardiness. No, no, you're fine. <laughs> Brian, that, that race promises to be one of the most exciting races we'll watch moving forward. If Bill, and, and uh, to be as ethical as possible. Yeah, you're you know, in it. I, I, I'm, in, I'm involved in that yeah. race, so I'll keep my mouth shut about it. Uh, no, go ahead and talk about what you think is going to unfold. Tell everybody who you're working with right now. Well, I'm working with Renee Otterman, who's right. uh, one of the, the longest-serving state senators and for the long time one of the only Republican women in the state Senate. And, uh, you know, one thing I find interesting that today's release from Mrs. Bordeaux is sort of keeps up with this this pattern. There's a lot of interest in the 7th District from people outside of the 7th District, whether people are moving there to run or people from outside the district are endorsing people who are in that race. And I think part of that is because there's going to be such a national focus on that district. As Representative uh, Oliver said, it's one of the very few swing districts out there. I mean, that's razor edge swing. And one thing that I'll say that without going into any prejudice on the race and the, or the candidates is we believe, Republicans believe, that the margin last time is a phony margin because, uh, or not necessarily telling, you know, Kemp did better than Woodall in that district. President Trump did better than Representative Woodall in that district. The General Assembly candidates did better. So the fundamentals are not as bad as the 400 I, I don't know, Andra. I think what he just suggests. did was make a case for how strong Carolyn Bordeaux is, that Precisely. she exceeded those Republicans uh, running in other races on that ballot. So I think you have a point. Um, <laughs> I think the other thing to, to, to keep in mind with this district is that the changing demographics in the district and how those align with partisanship suggests that that district is going to be competitive for some time to come. So even if Congressman Woodall underperformed, um, you know, this is still a district that's going to be competitive and that we expect is going to be increasingly competitive. As far as it being for some time to come, Republicans really need to win this one more time. Let's remember this because uh, we'll then go into redistricting and presumably they'll be able to draw maybe South Hall County or more of Forsyth County into that district and, and, you know, put some more Republicans in there. Greg, let me let me jump in with a question for you on this. Oh, did you want to well, respond? Well, I mean, two things. Under, I mean, we we'll want to wait to Greg. see if the Supreme Court still says that you can do partisan gerrymandering, um, you know, before, like, we get to that point. It's a topic that we are going to take up on Friday's show, when, the, when because the Supreme Court's expected to rule on that maybe fairly Monday. soon. Yeah, maybe Monday. Uh, Greg, you know, we talk about all the focus on the 7th. We knew it was going to be there no matter what, because, as Brian says, of the razor-thin sort of dif- dis- differentiation between Republican and Democrat voters there. But of course, Renee Unterman's entry into that race will also bring national forces into play because of her stand on virtually outlawing abortion mm-hmm. in Georgia. Yeah, she was one of the sponsors uh, of, of that bill in the Senate, um, m- m- kind of the main face of that bill in the Senate, and one of the reasons why um, it passed by a heftier margin in the Senate than it did in the House, where it was where it was, it was very close. Um, and also, uh, when we talk about Rob Woodall and, and the sort of underperformance of him last year, there was complaints from Republicans for months before that raised that he was not airing TV ads. He had, a, he had a hastily put together TV ad right before. He was not campaigning in a very forceful manner manner. He was not out there. So I think the, it, most national Republicans bet that Rob Woodall would lose instead of winning that one. And they bet that Karen Handel would win rather than losing in next door. So that's one of the reasons why Republicans are sort of buoyant on this race. But 
a national reporter tweeted this the other day, and I think he's right. Is there any more fascinating race in the nation, House race in the nation, than this race? Twelve candidates running the gamut from arch-conservative to uh, a liberal modeling herself after AOC, right? I mean, so you've got every sort of candidate in between running at a fast-changing, diverse electorate like Gwinnett and Forsyth. Carolyn Bordeaux really did well. You cannot. I mean, I, yeah. I agree with much of what you said about the complaints. Well, she raised a ton of money. She raised a ton of money. She did very, very well. Will Renee Unterman get out of the primary? That's part of the fascination mm -hmm. uh, among the discussion. She has strong opponents. She is a controversial person on many, many different levels. Uh, I've been with her. I've been against her. I want to be with her, but uh, being against her is uh, is a mixed bag. And the long political history she's had in Gwinnett County may not be as important as the newness of the voters coming into that county, right. attracted to somebody more Republican mainstream. Perhaps. It's a race we're going to have a great time watching. Without right. getting into the details of Renee, being an arch-conservative with a uh, unassailable conservative record is an undiluted good in right. a Republican primary. All right, that's all you get to say <laughs> as a representative. You know, I do have to point out that when you first said you were doing some work with Renee Unterman, you said, well, I'm going to work, maybe I'll be involved for a little while. It sounds like you're fully in. Huh? Well in. Yeah, yeah, well, okay. you know, there was, uh, she's only been announced for a few weeks, <laughs> and so right. I, I could not say more than all that. All right, I got time, you. Yeah. That makes sense. Uh, let's move on. Um, because we have a lot of ground to cover today. Greg Lustin, very just briefly, on the show, at, um, I can't remember what day it was, late last week, I imagine at this point, Ariel Hart, your colleague mm -hmm. who covers health issues at the AJC, came in to talk to us about an important story that she broke. She initially reported that 17,000, roughly, pe poor elderly, disabled Georgians on Medicaid were abruptly stripped of their Medicaid coverage, presumably because the Department of Community Health said, well, we told them they had to reapply, uh, they had to continue their coverage, they didn't respond to our emails, and we had no choice but to take them off the rolls. Subsequently, in conversations with many of those people and in looking at the, uh, I think, the website where, or, or whatever whatever uh, platform it is they would have gotten those messages on. Lawyers could find no initial communication from community health. Now we learn that, in fact, an additional 13,000 people were stripped of coverage. So we're up to 30-some thousand people who are not getting coverage. Uh, gov state government says it's their fault. Those people are saying we were not treated very well, and Ariel reports that trying to get back on Medicaid for them has been a really difficult path to pursue. Yeah, Ariel broke that story yesterday, and it came after another story she broke in the between those two, which showed just how hard it was for those seventeen to 30,000 people now trying to get back um, who were trying to f call in or, or, or get on the website or find any way to, to, to contact state health officials who were getting rebuffed, um, who were put, getting put on hold, who were getting being told to wait, wait, and wait. And these are people who can't uh, access their, their health care. Mary Margaret, it, this is the sort of thing that you would think that legislative leaders of the Republican as well as the Democratic Party would want to take a look at in some sort of study committee. Any fiscal conservative, whether they're the Democratic form of fiscal conservative or the Republican form, is going to recognize that the dollars lost for 30,000 people who need health care is enormous amount of money that should be going into our beleaguered health care system. I mean, if you just ignore the fact of the human tragedies that are going to occur, if you look at the amount of money at stake that Georgia is going to lose by a 30,000 patient error, that's very scary. Way back in my youth, I uh, spent all my 20s with legal services, working on these benefit cases. Of course, this was pre-computer. This was uh, pre-online applications. Uh, the ability to make the public benefit system work for the uh, person who is isolated, without a phone, without reading ability, without support and help is enormous. I was very interested in one of the quotes of the lawyers that are helping these people saying that she has never solved a problem online. She has only solved a problem by in-person conversation. And I know that my colleagues in the General Assembly, rural and urban, 
um, get complaints from constituents who cannot get something fixed, cannot get communications made, cannot get the right documents signed and in their hands. Andra, the most basic thing I think it's fair to say is that people expect government to work for them when they need help. And in a situation like this, not to, in addition to the fact that it's 30,000 mm-hmm. individuals, apparently, uh, the, the other part of this, for those of us who are not in this situation, is to wonder whether state government is failing its constituents. Well, and this is a process question. And so it's a question of whether or not the process was transparent, whether or not goals were communicated and instructions were communicated clearly to people and in a manner that would be considered reasonable in a way that you would expect people to actually be able to reasonably, um, you know, be able to get a hold of it and then be able to act upon it. Um, and so, you know, this raises an interesting structural question about, you know, why do we have opt-in versus opt-out systems yeah. at certain periods <laughs> of times? And so whether or not that was intentionally done to try to, you know, minimize costs by being able to kick some people off. So I think that there are lots of really important process questions that, you know, will not consider that, as that's a, a of it. That's a really good question, Brian, and it's you almost cringe to ask it. Would it is it possible that the Department of Community Health was looking to cut loose 30,000 people? No. I, I, <laughs> okay. And, and I can speak to that because, you know, I spent a lot of time in the executive branch of government, and there's folks who are heading up these departments that I know personally, you know, Frank Berry, who's a commissioner at the Department of Community Health, the people at the uh, at DFACS that control the, the gateway computer system, uh, Blake Fullenweider, who I work with in the governor's office, who is the head of the Medicaid program. These are people who are committed to serving our state's most vulnerable people. And they're caught in this vice grip between serving the people who need these services and being able to communicate with them and have them fill out the forms, do the responses that are necessary to carry out state law and the systems that are required. And that is an extraordinarily difficult task. And I think Representative Oliver hit on that. It's not because they're not trying. This is an extraordinarily difficult population to reach. They are so desperately poor in many cases. And, and this is also a death, bl- uh, deaf, blind, and disabled population as well. So folks who legitimately maybe couldn't read mail or sometimes don't have addresses, don't have access to Internet or, or cell phones. So it's a struggle for these people who are trying to reach this population. Right. I will give the benefit of the doubt to Dr. Barry and to Brian Fullenweiler, and it is, but other states do it better. Other states can do it better. For instance, if we require people to reapply every six months, and the real population error, population problem, and errors occur when people are going in and out of employment. You can be permanently blind and permanently disabled, permanently old, but for the applicant who's going in and out of employment and requiring a six-month reapplication process, you are imposing difficult timetables. Other states don't have that, and other states do have the opt-out versus opt-in application process that is allowed by the federal regulations. Well, that that six-month requirement is a cost-saving mechanism. It is. It is is a budget maneuver. You got one last word before our break. The six-month reapply rule is damaging to poor working Georgians, period. All right. It's a story that's going to play out. We'll, uh, Ariel Hart will continue uh, staying on top of it, I'm sure. And as developments occur, we will bring them to you. Look, let's get a break out of the way because we haven't talked about Donald Trump's official announcement. Uh, we haven't talked about this date in history and why it's important today. We'll do all that and more after these messages. Now is the perfect time to clean out the garage and get rid of that car you no longer need. You'll face the coming months with a fresh start, and by donating your used car to GPB, you'll even get a tax deduction. Call 877-GPB-1-CAR or donate securely online at gpb.org slash cars. And thanks. In New York, tenant advocates are celebrating a sweeping new law designed to protect renters across the state. There's the right to make sure repairs are done or at least being able to have some comfort in making a complaint to like buildings and codes and not feeling like you're about to be retaliated against. Landlords say the law will reduce the supply of affordable housing. That story this afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. 4 till 7 today on GPB and gpbnews.org. 
We're back with Brian Robinson, Mary Margaret Oliver, Andre Gillespie, Greg Bluestein to talk about the uh, politics that are in the news today. The big story for many people was that in Orlando, Florida last night, President Trump officially launched his reelection bid, Greg Bluestein. He uh, had maybe 20,000 people in the arena there to cheer him on. They turned it into a festival, an all-day event, uh, 45 Fest, I think they called it. How could they not call it Trump Fest? <laughs> How did he blow that branding That name was trademarked. <laughs> but people were camping out overnight to see him in Orlando. There was a huge crowd, and there was, there was watching parties all over the nation, including more than 30 here in Georgia, um, in every corner of the state, where Republicans gathered to get some training done, to be energized about Republicans. Republican candidates running for office next year and, of course, to watch the, the Trump rally where he focused on his messaging, he focused on the economy, but also went back to some of his greatest hits attacking the media and attacking Democrats and in, in, in the quote-unquote socialist agenda. Yeah. Uh, Andre, this all happens uh, at the time that we realize, not, we are told, not only from the leak of his internal polls, but from now a Fox News poll that he's trailing uh, at least one or two other can uh, two two or more Democratic candidates rather for president in Florida, in Georgia, in other states that are cr uh, crucial to him. But you understand data better than any of us. We're awfully early to be talking about polling. Yeah, and so you know, while I would say that you have to sort of take polls for what they are and not read more into them, that's there. So I'm not going to go as far as President Trump did, say George Stephanopoulos saying, "I don't believe polls. Polls are garbage." Um, those weren't his exact words, I know, <laughs> um, uh, but that was the sentiment behind it. Polls are only as good as they are in the field, and so that captures what people think at the moment that they're being asked the question. New information could cause people to update, and that could cause people to make different choices. So just because this is where we are now in June doesn't mean that this is where we're going to be, you know, in September of 2020 or even in late October of 2020. So we just kind of have to keep on monitoring the situation. And, you know, part of the reason why we do these things now is so that we can chart changes Benchmarks. over time. Yeah. It's benchmarks. People are going to look for, for trend lines. What this suggests now is that this race is going to be competitive. I think a lot of us actually thought that this was going to be intuitive, that there were going to be a lot of passions out there and that the race was going to be close. What this also does not tell us is what the distribution of this vote necessarily looks like nationally. I mean, the statewide polls tell us that some of these state contests are going, you know, to be really competitive. Um, a lot of them are within the margin, which is what we should expect. So there isn't a whole lot that we can read into them yet. And so I would just say, you know, just gather more information and, and, and wait and see. But this race is shaping up to be a pretty competitive race. And that's what, uh, you know, the Democrats, I guess, can take heart in. And that's what the Trump team needs to be put on notice for. Um Greg said uh, that he did uh, talk about his victories. He did spend some time on that. He also uh, told stories about what he intends to do in the future, although he didn't lay out a very specific agenda. But I think it's also safe to say that one of the dominant themes of this speech could be summed up by this soundbite. Our radical Democrat opponents are driven by hatred, prejudice, and rage. They want to destroy you, and they want to destroy our country as we know it. Not acceptable. It's not going to happen. The only thing these corrupt politicians will understand is an earthquake at the ballot box. That's what they will understand, and they're going to see it. Brian, Mary Margaret, I want to get you both involved. And, and Brian, let me preface it by this. It, for the first, I, I don't know why this hasn't occurred to me a long time ago, but last night it really hit me hard. Uh, one of the things, uh, look, that could be a winning strategy. It sure was in 2016. He whipped up his voters and he got them out to, to the polls in the right states and won the election. But it, all of a sudden last night it struck me, he's teaching us how to hate each other. And that, beyond whether you think Trump is good for uh, you know, in terms of the policies p putting together or not, that suddenly felt really troubling to me. I'm not taking the bait. On that, Bill. <laughs> I, I don't, don't know what it. the bait is. It seems self-evident. I, I, I have a different perspective because I see myself as someone who tries to have civil conversations about yes, you politics do. outside yes, you of do. partisanship. Absolutely. And I try to make that my brand when I do this stuff. And I speak in public a lot. And when I'm in front of a uh, heavily democratic audience, even the most nuanced uh, arguments, even pointing out problems with my side, 
if I say anything that goes against their orthodoxy, I get booed. And, and it really is. It is hateful. They, the, the, the rage that he's talking about, I have witnessed myself. I'm not saying there's not rage on both sides, but I think that there's hatred and rage on both sides. So I, I would push back on the idea that Trump is teaching us how to hate each other. I think we hate each other, and his message sort of fits the zeitgeist of the moment. But it was there before him. It was there during the Barack Obama years, even though he's a much different personality, not probably as, you know, as you know, cutting as, as Trump is. But it's been there for a long time. Mary Margaret? You cannot in any way say that John McCain was a hater or fomented hate. You cannot in any way say that the president's strategy is not based on hate a failure to include people, a, fa- uh, a strategy of isolating his base into a fomenting rage. It's tragic. It's tragic. I'm a civil person. I try, certainly try to be. I don't in any way applaud uh, a divisive strategy. But the language that the president uses consistently, and getting worse, consistently one of only you and I matter we are the people that we have to stand to protect the world of the 50s. Everybody else is coming after us. Well, and, right. and I think conservatives feel that way when they watch late night TV, that they are hated, that they are looked down upon, uh, that they are condescended to. And that is where where Trump is capitalizing on that insecurity and that anger on the right. People feel like, like if you are conservative, you're not allowed to express your views in public anymore. You are sanctioned socially. And and I will go back to the 2000s as Mary Margaret did. I was on Capitol Hill working when Democrats were calling George W. Bush a Nazi. And it was very divisive. And it was, it was he was called a Nazi. He was. And that, so this is not a new thing. Well, I'm not sure that there was a, a an elected official, Andra, of stature who was calling George W. Bush a Nazi. There may have been anti-Bush people out there in America who did that, but not of the stature of a president of the United States. So, you know, I, I, I will agree that both sides have a tendency to other people and to, and to be incivil to people and to, you know, and, and to not actually seek to try to bridge, to build bridges and other types of things. I will acknowledge that there's something that strikes me as qualitatively different about what President Trump does. And so I will never forget walking out of the last night of the Republican National Convention. And as I was walking out, as everybody was doing, going through the security gates that you could get outside of the secured area. And I remembered hearing a British journalist going after President Trump's acceptance speech. Um, He's a demagogue. Um, And I think that, you know, there is othering and then there is othering that is compounded by demagoguery. And so what President Trump has succeeded in doing is he has succeeded in tapping into people's pre-existing fears, anxieties and prejudices. Um, And then he has sort of like added fuel to the fire and then ginned people up to say that I'm the only one who could serve you. And I think he was doing some of that last night. And I think the latest addition to that is the line that he's been using for a while about socialism and part tapping into people's um, understanding about what, what, what socialism is and how people tend to conflate socialism and communism together. Um, you know, thinking that everybody must be thinking about Soviet style, uh, you know, uh, socialism and communism, as opposed to probably thinking about the social democracy that many people may be thinking about with respect to Scandinavia and us having a, a really reasoned debate where people are not going to agree on those issues. But like, if you can kind of dismiss them as socialists, people in their minds are going to think Soviet style communists. And then that might actually keep people in the camp. And, 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 and that plus the other sort of stuff on race and gender, that's actually extremely divisive is I think what people are reacting to. Greg, how do you see this playing out in Georgia in the months ahead? Well, Georgia is going to be a battleground state. There's no doubt about that. We've already had most leading presidential candidates visit. We've had Trump visit not that long ago um, for an opioid conference. He'll be back. Um, The Senate race is going to be the most expensive Senate race we've had ever. Um, It will will get close to the gubernatorial spending, but we had a lot more candidates in that one. Um, And it will be divisive and it will reflect the national rhetoric we heard because what strikes me about what Trump just said, we've heard 
activists and partisans and people on social media saying things like that, and maybe some elected officials. But what strikes me about what we just heard Trump say was saying the other side is trying to destroy the country is that that's not even the biggest headline of the day. You know, it's become so ho-hum for the president of the nation to say that roughly half of the nation is trying to destroy the country. As opposed to roughly half the nation is de- in a basket of deplorables. I, I think that's an important point. Yeah, right. There's a difference right. between there's a difference between divisive and just pure mean spirited baiting of people. Um, we are a nation. We like to say of values, Christian, Jewish values. The gospel talks. The Torah talks about humility as a central basis of our faith. Humility, social justice, and kindness. How can we in any way talk about the values of our nation and listen to that speech? You know, I think part, some of the other thing to think about is this issue of moral leadership. We talk about it often um, at Emory, um, particularly in the Candler School. And so I think there's a question of, you know, if you like the tax cuts, even if you like the stance on family issues that President Trump has aligned himself with, with and I think that's more clearly embodied with Vice President Pence, when he engages in this type of behavior, is he exhibiting moral leadership? So even if you think that President Obama was divisive, this is where the tone matters. And the tone actually gave him a certain credibility and authority to be able to get up and say certain things. When President Trump says stuff, even if there's something in there you agree with, it is the histrionics around it. It is usually the lying that goes along with it that kind of really undermines the argument. And it actually makes it difficult, more difficult for him to lead. And I've just come to the conclusion, especially listening to him tout accomplishments that weren't actually true um, or that were taken out of context last night. Um, and, and actually watching lots of things that President Trump sort of thinks that if he goes around and waves his hands all the time and looks busy, then therefore something is getting done. And I think we're just going to have to be more discerning about actually cutting through like all of the drama to actually look at what's happening and what's not happening. All right. I'm going to give you the last word on this, Brian, before we get to a break. I thought the event last night was hilarious. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, is he ever, like, just dead on with truth all the time? You know, can you pick pick apart what he says? Yeah, absolutely. I've, I've always said that. But a lot of it is showmanship. And a lot, if you just took back, look back and, and just enjoy it, no, no, a lot no, no, of it no. is very funny. No, 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 no. Wait, that wait. cannot be the last word. <laughs> it's being a reality store, a reality star who is mean-spirited, baiting hatred, is not entertaining. All right, I tell you what we're going to do. We're going to we will have months to talk about this uh, in as we move toward the election next, no, next November. I do as we go to break. Want to say, Brian? It is absolutely true. You come on this show and you have always talked about politics in a respectful way. Sometimes you're a little smart alecky and our <laughs> listeners slap you down. <laughs> but I, you definitely deserve credit for uh, being someone who talks about politics respectfully. That's so, the nicest thing you ever said. <laughs> yeah, we'll I be right back. <laughs> On the next Fresh Air, Ava DuVernay, producer, director, and co-writer of the Netflix series When They See Us, which depicts the story of the Central Park Five from the perspective of the five black and brown boys who were convicted of brutally raping a woman in 1989, spent years in prison, but their convictions were vacated when the rapist confessed. Join us. Fresh air is this afternoon at 3 on GPB and gpbnews.org. Hi, I am Jenny Benura, President and CEO of Harry Norman Realtors. Harry Norman Realtors is the luxury leader in residential real estate services for over 90 years. Our clients listen to GPB. The thing we like most about GPB is it's relevant, it's current, it's about the community in which we live. To find out more about becoming a corporate sponsor, email sponsorship at gpb.org. We're back. I guess we're back on the radio. We're having such a good time talking here that uh, we didn't realize we were back on the air. But we are. Um, let's talk about Juneteenth, because today is Juneteenth. And it's, it was this day in 1865, right? Mm-hmm. June 18th, 18th 1865. 19th. 
The state of Texas had not really been a big player in the Civil War. It was kind of out there in the West and it didn't have much uh, involvement. And there were slaveholders who left the South and resettled in Texas. There were and, and and they didn't realize that the Emancipation Proclamation had been signed by the president, been put into effect, and it was on this date when does a man General Gordon? I'm not Granger. sure. Granger. Granger. Yeah. The Civil War general came to Texas, Union general, and proclaimed that that the slaves were all free. And from that day on, we've talked about this date as Juneteenth. Have I got that right, everybody? Yeah, Andra. Yeah. So I mean, this is the day where African Americans. Um, functionally recognize their freedom. So in, in Texas, I mean, we have to keep in mind that we're talking over 150 years ago. So even though they had um, telegrams, it's not like today where you find out stuff instantly, where, you know, you've got TV and radio and the Internet. So um, there was a lag between uh, slaves knowing that the Emancipation Proclamation had been issued, that the Civil War had ended, and them finding out that they were, in fact, free. So Juneteenth is the day that this group of, of slaves in Texas realized that they were free, and so that this is the day that they would mark, because that would be the significant day for them. History matters. It, it always matters. And General Granger was sent, commissioned down there, tell these people, because they had previously given the power, authority, direction to the slave owners to tell the slaves it's over. Uh, many of them didn't see it in their interest <laughs> right. to tell them that the slaves, that the slave was over. And this phenomena, I did not know this, is in this history is always helpful. The slave owners that move slaves to Texas to avoid implementation of emancipation was the basis and the genesis of June 10th. June, June 10th. 10th. Mm-hmm. Which so, is June 19th. So, uh, Greg Bluestein, um, one of the reasons this is particularly uh, important to talk about today is that Congress today, the House Judiciary Committee, chose this day to hold a hearing on an issue that's becoming a big part of Democratic presidential campaign, and that's whether the United States should offer refer, uh, reparations to descendants of slaves in some form. And the hearing that was held today was not about how do we distribute money to African Americans as a recompense. It was about should we even have a study mm-hmm. commission that will look at this, and this bill has languished in Congress for a long time. For, for decades, yeah. really, the debate has gone on, maybe even long, well, long longer than decades, um, but and the bill is seen as an initial step, and basically it would set up a commission to evaluate how you do reparations if you do them, and also whether to give a national apology. The House passed a bill that, that, would, that was a, a, an apology, um, but this would be you know, a, a bigger step than that, to, to issue a national apology for institutionalizing racism and slavery for so long. And it's also offered a window into the presidential, growing presidential debate among Democratic contenders um, over the, the act of reparations. Well, what's interesting, Brian, is virtually every Democratic candidate with a couple of exceptions, has said, yes, some form of referent of reparations one way or the other are important. It's interesting that we now find Joe Biden uh, in, in, in a target because he has said, I'm not so sure about that. As has Bernie Sanders, right? Yeah. So, you know, this, it, 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 as a Republican watching this unfold, I mean, Mitch McConnell yesterday said, I don't think we should give reparations mm-hmm. because we weren't involved. This happened generations before we all came along. One way or another, Republicans and Democrats both are going to wrestle with this all the way till November. I am personally fine with Democrats having this conversation because it is yet one more example of that primary going further and further and further to the left and making them uh, vulnerable in November of 2020. Uh, they are This is outside of the mainstream. And you're talking about this word reparations without telling anybody what it means. Is it a transfer of wealth of some sort? And, and how do you do that, particularly in a society where we have so much amalgamation today? You know, look at Sasha and Malia Obama. You know, they are the descendants of white people and the descendants of African slaves. Do they give money to each other? What, how, do, how does this work? It's, it's an impractical idea. We owe a debt to African Americans in this country. There's no doubt about it. what happened there was one of the greatest sins of our nation's, probably the greatest sin of our nation's history. But there's really not a practical way of doing it. One thing that I would suggest is we continue to focus on the low socioeconomic people of our country, regardless of race. And the other thing is we need as a nation, particularly the South, 
to have a determined effort to show the African-American part in building this country. It is hidden from our monuments. It is hidden from our... Stone Mountain. From, from Stone... Well, we're beginning to change that a little bit, I think. But we need to show in our public monuments and in what we celebrate the role that African-Americans have played in our history. They helped build this region. Andra? Well, I mean, so... I think that the questions that you raise are questions that could be studied in a commission like this. And I think that that's the whole point. Instead of just completely shutting the whole thing down and saying, let's not even explore this anymore. Let's look at, one, understanding the history. We have a problem here. So, you know, in survey data that I've collected, people have a really hard time um, understanding and identifying structural racism. And this is a structural problem. So that's why the debate is going to be difficult. But just because it's difficult doesn't mean that we shouldn't do it or we shouldn't have the conversation. Um, And, you know, the questions... Uh, that you raise um, are things that I think can actually be answered in a really studious and important way. So, I mean, you know, you, you highlight Sasha and Malia Obama. We could talk about Jay-Z and Beyonce's kids. That's a rarefied group of black people. Most of us do not sort of, you know, have those types of privileges. And even with their privileges, they are still going to be disadvantaged on some dimensions because of their race. That's part of the discussion. But, you know, to go to Senator McConnell's comments about we don't know who would benefit from that. Yeah, we do. All right. And in case he's confused, I like, you know, am the descendant of slaves. I could tell you plantations that we that I was a part of. And yes, I have white ancestry and I got it because of rape. So let's not sort of like pretend that we can't identify this in our history and talk about it. And then even ask the question of if blacks built this country, were they able to benefit materially from their having participated in it? Like they don't get residuals. They don't get shares of ownership. And that's what this important debate is about. And some of this actually helps to predict people's life chances later on. And that's what they're trying to. We're going to run out of time way before we've had a full discussion on this, Greg. I do think this is an issue that many voters Republican or Democrat are going to have a hard time wrapping their minds around, despite all of the passionate arguments that uh, Andre and others make. I'm not sure how the voters are going to uh, look at this. And that's one of the reasons Biden is being very cautious. We mentioned how most White House hopefuls have have exhibited some level of support for reparations, but it varies wildly from Julian Castro, who says full reparations for for, for any descendants of African-American slaves, um, to to people like Biden who are much more um, squeamish about it. The history of the economy of this nation, history is important, as I've said previously today, but history of the economy of this nation is based on slavery. Uh, And we cannot not talk about be, that. Because we're running short on time, we're not going to get to play the soundbite from Ta-Nehisi Coates, who was testifying today. He made that exact point in front of the committee. He pointed out that by the end of slavery, uh, slaves in this country had contributed more than three to four billion dollars in economic value to the United States, which was a powerful... I had never heard that figure before, and I find it very powerful. And they built the White House. Of course. I do think, and we really are running out of time, uh, Andra, I do think figuring out... The commission is one thing. Americans wrapping their minds around the issue as well, how much money, who gets it, that is a harder thing for, I think, people who get around. Right, and, and, and I think as we go through this, we'll get to that step. But the part of the reason why this is not as fringe as it used to be is that there are African-American Democrats who are demanding that this these kinds of issues be addressed. All right, can I do this? I, I, this very group, would you all come talk about this in a longer segment at another point if we schedule this? Because this is worth a bigger conversation. And maybe we'll add a couple of other uh, people, voices to this as well. All right. We are completely out of time uh, for today's show. Andrew Gillespie, Mary Margaret Oliver, Brian Robinson, Greg Boosting. Thanks for being here. Thank you all for being here for Political Rewind. We won't be here tomorrow. But we're here on Friday. Eric Tannenblatt, Nakima Williams, Jim uh, Galloway. We'll all be joining me then. See ya.